as we look into your word, we ask that you illuminate our minds so that we can understand what it is that you are teaching us and communicating to us, and that you soften the ground of our hearts so that we can receive your truth with humility and with, um, with zeal, so that when we hear your word, um, that it may create faith in us, and that we may uh, go forth from this place uh, knowing that you are a living God and that you are working in our midst. So, Lord, speak to us and transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, starting today, excuse me, starting today, we're starting a uh, new series on um, the entire Bible, and I'm calling it God's Story. And the reason why I'm doing this is because sometimes you look at a verse. um, How many of you guys, like, read, like, one verse or get one verse per day, like a verse a day kind of thing. I do that, right? And it's really nice. It speaks truth into my life and kind of helps me um, go about my day in the right mindset with the right heart. But sometimes when we look at individual passages, we kind of forget about the big picture of the Bible. And uh, that's why for the next few weeks, I'm going to spend time either in each book of the Bible, um, and I'm going to pick one, one passage that represents it represents the overall, overall big picture message of the Bible, or I'm going to take a chunk of the Bible, uh, a chunk of books, like, for example, the Gospels, and I'm going to pick one, one passage to represent the message of the Gospels, right? And what I want to do is I want us to see God's story. I want us to stitch it together and see that there is one big story through, from Genesis to Revelation, And today I want to spend time just kind of looking at the overall question, the big picture question. What is the Bible about? What is the Bible, what's the whole point of the Bible anyway, right? And just like any good book, right, if you want to know what the book is about, where do you usually go besides a Google Google review, (laughs) right? You pick up the book, right? You want to know how the story ends, right? And then you know what the book is about, right? Um, you, go to, you go to the last book, or the last chapter, rather. And so that's what we're going to do today, Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 through 5. And when we look at this, this is basically what the Bible is about. Now, when you try to answer this question, there are two approaches you can take. Uh, this is a simplified version of how we approach the Bible, but it's useful for this purpose. There are two approaches you can take. You can either read your Bible in a way where you understand the Bible to tell you what you should be doing with your life and what you should not be doing with your life, right? That's one way to approach the Bible when you read it. Another way to approach the Bible is it tells you what God is doing with your life, right? So the two approaches are, one, it tells you what you should do with your life, or two, it tells you what God is doing with your life. In other words, if you approach the Bible in a way where the Bible is telling you what you should be doing with your life, the Bible becomes a moral handbook. Kind of like if, when you write a research paper and you look up MLA or Chicago style or Turabian, whatever it is that you, you used to use to format your paper, um, you, can, you don't read the whole thing, right? Unless you're really into it, <laughs> I guess. But... If you need to know how to footnote something, if you need to know how to format your title page, 
you go to that part of the Bible, or not Bible, that part of the book, and then you read up on how, what it tells you to do. And then you follow the directions based on what you've read in your MLA handbook, in your Turabian handbook, Chicago-style handbook, whatever. That's how we treat the Bible sometimes. It becomes a handbook, a moral handbook, where we kind of go to it, and then it tells us something about how we should be living our lives, how we should be thinking about our lives, or how we should be feeling about our lives. On the other, the other approach, where if the Bible is something that God is doing, if, if, it, if, it, if the Bible tells us something that God is doing over our lives and in our lives and through our lives, it's not a handbook that you kind of reference whenever you need it, right? It's, a, it's an epic. What I mean by that is there's, there's a villain. <laughs> there's a hero, right? There's an origin story. There's conflict, right? And there's an end game, right? I know what some of you guys are thinking when I mention that word, right? There's an end game, right? Um, <clears throat> the end game is, and typically what the end game is, is when the villain is conquered by the hero, right? And the world is saved from destruction because the, the, uh, the, the, what is it? The life, the lives of people in the world, that's what's at stake, right? The world is at stake, right? And if you understand the Bible to be mainly about what God is doing, you're going to read it like an epic, right? Where there's an origin story. There's a villain, there's a hero, and then there's this salvation that happens in the end, right? Um, and that's what I want to show you guys, that, you know, when we look at the Bible, maybe, maybe we're, we, we tend not to want to read it, or we tend not to really want to spend time with it, maybe because we treat it like a dictionary, you know, where you go up to look up a word, or you treat it like an encyclopedia, where you go up... Where you, where you go to it to look, to look up an article about something, rather than the Bible being an epic, where God is, you're reading the story from beginning to end, where God is telling you what he's doing, right? Not only what he has been doing, and not only what he's going to do, but what he is currently doing with you, with your life, with all the experiences that you have right now, right? And if you understand that you are part of this story, the Bible becomes something much more, not only interesting, but it becomes bigger. It's not this dusty book that gets kind of shelved and you pull it out once in a while just to look up one thing and then you put it back, right? The Bible is living and it's active. And you are a part of that great big picture story. That you are a part of that epic. You're not the hero. You're also not the villain. But you're part of that story, right? That God is doing. And so this passage, when you look at it, it really tells you what God is doing and what he's going to do. What he has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. And what's interesting about this passage 
is that you begin to appreciate it more when you realize that the words in verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 22 is actually referencing something much older than Revelation. It's actually referencing a passage in Ezekiel 47. Can we all turn to that right now? And I want you to see how close the language is between Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5 and Ezekiel 47. Um, <laughs> yeah, Bible Gateway, <laughs> right? Or Open Bible? I forget which one's which. Um, but uh, Ezekiel 47, and I'm opening up my app too. You can tell I'm sick because I, I should have this prepared. Sometimes, you know, these apps are supposed to be uh, convenient, but I feel like sometimes it takes longer to look up, look up the Bible in the app than it does in paper. Um, <coughs> okay. So when you see verse... Let's see. So it talks about this river, and you're going to see, you, you also see in Revelation 22 that it talked about a river. But what's interesting is if you look at verse 12, Ezekiel 47, verse 12, and it says, and on the banks, so it's talking about this river, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. Because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Right? Now, if you go back to Revelation chapter 22, you see the same language there. And what, what the author of Revelation 22 is doing is he's pointing to this very old passage, this ancient passage. And he's communicating this very ancient word to his contemporary believers, right? In order to communicate that what, what God is doing is very different from what we have been doing. What God is doing is very different from what we've been doing. And when you look at Ezekiel 47, when you consider the background to it, Ezekiel was a prophet and Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, um, communicates what happened before Jerusalem fell, before the, the city was um, sieged and it fell, and what happened afterwards. That's what Ezekiel is about, actually. It's about the temple, which is the center of life. Can you imagine something like this happening in our city? Whatever you think that the, that the center for all human life in this city is, Okay, Can you imagine that just getting destroyed and decimated? That's what was happening in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was a witness to all of that, before and after. And for Ezekiel, God's people, what they did was they broke faith with God. They were disobedient. They were constantly, stubbornly disobedient. And that's what caused the fall of Jerusalem. You see, the fall of Jerusalem for Ezekiel was not just natural causes. Oh, that's 
just the way that the world works, right? The strong eat the weak, right? That's not how we understand. That wasn't his narrative. The way he interpreted the fall of Jerusalem, the, the center of Jewish life, was that the people were disobedient to God. That's what caused it for Ezekiel, right? And what Ezekiel is communicating is that if God, if, if there will be a time when the city of God will be raised up and it will become an eternal city for people to find refuge and people to flourish in, it's going to be God who's going to do it. Because what people did was people caused the fall to happen, the fall of Jerusalem. And if Jerusalem is going to be built up ever again, it's going to be a God thing. And that's what Ezekiel was profoundly aware of. He was aware that God's presence will bring that city back again. He was aware that God's faithfulness, okay? If you're faithful, you're going to be present, right? If you're unfaithful, you're not, right? Uh, In one sense, right? Not always, but uh, generally. God's presence and his faithfulness is linked together for Ezekiel, and it's a strong theme for him. And the reason why John is writing in reference to this is because he's saying this is what the Bible has always been about. This is what God's story, this is what human history has always been about. It's always been about God bringing his people through time and through different events to a place where God's city Right? God's people will be built up. Even though they were broken, even though they were disobedient, even though they were sinful, even though they were faithless, right? God is going to make it happen. And if you look in Ezekiel 36, 22, you don't have to turn there unless you want to, but if you just listen to these words, this is the reason why God's going to do this, right? He says, therefore, say to the house of Israel... Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. What this is saying, it's a good summary of what the Bible is about. What the Bible is about, it's not about us being good for God. When we look at the story of the Bible, it's not about us trying to be the best people for God, the best city for God. It's about God, despite our brokenness and our sinfulness, him being the best God for his people. Him being the God of his own city. And if that city that was broken and if it fell because of human failure, right, If it will ever be built up, it will be because of who God is. And so if you look in verse 1 through 2, we see, first of all, a city with life. Remember, you have to tie it with Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 is all about a city being destroyed. The entire book of Ezekiel is about that, right? With messages of hope in there. But... You see a city of life. You see what happened in Ezekiel being flipped. The promises that were in Ezekiel have now, are now being fulfilled in Revelation 22. Okay? 
And he says, there's a river of life. There, there are two images that come out. There's a river of life and there's a tree of life. Okay? And the river of life, it says it's bright as crystal. It flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And what's interesting is that Ezekiel 47 talks about a river too. And how it's, it's like a trickle, but then it gets bigger and bigger until it's massive. Right? You can't even cross it anymore because the river is so strong. And it's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And what that's saying is, if, there is, if, there is ever, if God's people are ever going to be filled with life only and, and no longer death and destruction and everything that sin brought into the world, it's going to come from God. It's going to come from the Lamb. And he uses this language of sacrifice, referencing Jesus Christ, right, as the Lamb of God, showing that the way it's going to come about is through Christ's redemptive work on the cross. It's not coming about. This river of life does not flow from us, from the people. It flows from God, and it flows from Jesus' work on the cross. That's where life comes from, right? The interesting thing about Jerusalem is that there is no river there. You can Google it, right? Just Google Jerusalem, and you can look around. There's no river close by. And so for the people who are living in Jerusalem, when, the, when they're hearing the message, there's a river, right? And this river is flowing through the middle of the street of the city, which is Jerusalem, right? You have to understand what kind of a message of hope and life that is for people where they are living in an environment that is hostile to the point where there is no abundant source of water, right? It's like speaking to people who are war-torn, right? That... there is a time when your, your life will no longer be filled with war. You will no longer spend your nights wondering if you will not wake up. And we can, we can contextualize it to our situations. You know, have you ever been in a situation where, I mean, just think back to like when you were in high school or middle school, if you ever went through a struggle, some anxiety, where there was no security or stability either due to academic futures, financial conditions, whatever, family, whatever it is, right? And then someone spoke to you and said, there is a day that's coming when you will not feel this anymore. You will not experience this anymore. That's what it sounds like to them. It sounds like good news. It sounds like hope, right? To a people where there is no fresh water, right? There is no river, for them to hear that there is a river of life and it's going to come from God and from the Lamb, right? It breathes hope into them. And so you have this, you have themes of creation because when you read in Genesis 2, I know I'm being a little nerdy today with the passage, right? Yeah, days like, yep, yeah. <laughs> right? But it's, let me just tell you, in, when you read in Genesis, when God created everything, he, there were four rivers in Genesis 2. And that's where the garden was. That's where Eden was. right? And so what, what the author is communicating is that from Genesis and from Ezekiel, right, 
See, in Genesis, what God created to be good got broken by sin. And then Ezekiel is like the fulfillment of that because Ezekiel lived that and he wrote through that where Jerusalem fell. He wrote through that. And then he prophesied about a time when it will be restored. And in Revelation, it talks about how the city of God is now back. It's it, what, what, has been, what, what has been broken by our disobedience is now fulfilled. Okay? And he talks about the tree of life. And it's how it's on either side of the river. This is all in Ezekiel 47. You can read verse 7, verse 12, right? It has 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. It also points back to creation, not just Ezekiel. And so you see this city full of life. And the leaves of the tree, it says, were for the healing of the nations. And what's different, there are similarities with the creation, with Genesis, and there are similarities with Ezekiel, but there are also major differences, and this is one of them. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, where, as in Ezekiel, there's judgment on the nations. And usually when it says nations, it's not including the Jewish people. It's, it's everyone else. And here, when it's talking about that the leaves were for the healing of the nations... It's saying the city is being restored, but it's going to look different. It's not just for the Jews only, but for all races, all different kinds of races, right? And it's all of them, all these different people, and all these different races and ethnicities, they're all going to find eternal healing from their sin. It's not just the Jews who were privileged, who were promised spiritual healing, but it's actually even the non-Jews who will receive forgiveness of sins and redemption and life. And you see, that's a radical message. It was a radical message in the, in the, in, in the Gospels and Acts especially, right? And it's still a radical message for the people who are reading this when John wrote this book. As the author, uh, as John who is the author of Revelation, as he's writing all of this and he's talking about a city with life, he connects it with the presence of God. And he's saying life comes from God. Life comes from the Lamb, right? Because the river comes from the throne of God, right? From his sovereign rule, from his power, from his almighty um, presence. But he also says in verses 3 to 5, that you can't have this kind of a life, you can't have this kind of community, this kind of city, this kind of a people that's flourishing with life without God. <clears throat> John talks about there being nothing accursed anymore. And what, he's, what he means by that is everything that has been broken by sin in Genesis 3 it's no longer there. Even Christ, the lamb who has been slain, him being cursed on the tree for our sin, that's no longer there. And what's present now is his triumphant state, how Christ is now reigning supreme. He's no longer the suffering servant that we find in the Gospels, right? But he's the triumphant king. And what that means for us, is that 
we will see him, uh, what is it? His servants will worship God, it says in verse 3 to 5, and also that they will see his face. This is also language for seeing God post-death. You see, this is the hope that John is communicating, and this is what the Bible is about, right? When, they, when it says they will see his face, you look at the themes about seeing God's face from the Old Testament to the New, it's usually the same. You cannot see God's face, right? When you see someone face to face, you're present with them. You're together, right, physically. And some people will even say that, you know, a meetup face to face is much more intimate and more meaningful than, you know, a phone conversation or whatever. I think it's changing a little bit. Uh, people are getting more used to the social media conversations, but that's still there, absolutely. But face-to-face, when you are face-to-face with someone, you're not only physical, physically present, but you're emotionally and relationally present with them as well, right? And when it says here, they will see his face, it's talking about God's, not only his Holy Spirit presence in us, that that's how we know God right now, is that God is living in us. But there is coming, there, there will be a time when believers will see God's face. And it will no longer be the case where people, if they were to see God's face physically, they would die because of their sinfulness and because of God's holiness. There is coming a time after death when they, they will no longer be hindered by sin, broken by sin, and they will have perfect union with God in glory. Do you guys realize what that means? You see, the Bible is not about us. It's like, like I said again, it's not a handbook that we use to try to make ourselves better. You see, you cannot get to the point, no matter how holy you are, whether it was Moses or whoever, even Moses couldn't see his face, even though he was the man that he was, right? But the promise is that even though we're, we're not even close to who Moses is, in Christ, in the Lamb, there will come a time when all of us, everyone who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we will see God face to face. Do you guys know what kind of a promise that is? This is what the Bible is about, is that even though there is brokenness in our world and brokenness in us, you see, it's not even just our circumstances and situations. It's that we're broken. We're part of the problem. But there will come a time for everyone who has been washed by the blood of the Lamb, they will no longer be influenced by this sin brokenness. In all of its forms, whether you cause a problem or if the problem is put on you. This is a message that brings tremendous hope to people, especially people who are suffering. Not the kind of suffering that you can get out of, out of years, but the kind of suffering where you can't, where you cannot escape it. For example, like I, I mentioned this a lot, like terminal cancer, right? You cannot escape that. What, what are you going to say, you know, to someone who has who has chronic suffering, right? Sometimes it's insulting to tell them there's a better day because you're not going through it. And if you're going through it, 
it definitely feels like there is no better day. You see, this message of hope, it's saying there will come a time when you will see God face to face. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 through 13, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, this may seem a little cryptic to some of you, but this is the same chapter as the same thing as, this is the same chapter as uh, the message of love that is pretty popular, right? Love is kind, love is patient, right? It's in that same logical thought that Paul mentions this, right? And what he's saying is right now in this life, with the sin brokenness that we live with, we're like looking into a mirror, and a mirror in the ancient times was not like the mirror that you see today, where it's like so clear. The mirror in ancient times was just like brushed metal, and you can kind of see yourself. There was no like polishing and, you know, all of that. It was just metal, and you kind of saw an image, right? And so when it, when it says, we, for now we see in a mirror dimly, see, everybody understood that back then because everybody knew what an ancient mirror was. And yeah, People were frustrated by the fact that it wasn't as clear as an image they would have liked, but that's, what, that's the only technology they, that they had when it came to mirrors. And so when Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, we're, it's like right now we're seeing in a mirror dimly, but there will come a time when we will see face to face. It's saying, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? We're going to be with God. We're going to be united with God in such a way that it's not just this vague picture. It's not this thing where I kind of get it, I kind of don't, I kind of feel it sometimes, I kind of don't feel it most times, right? There, there, will be, there will come a time when my life before God and with God, there will no longer be vagueness and this cloud and this dimness, but it will be as clear as we see each other today. We will see God as clearly as we see one another. And our union will be that clear. And you see, that's why he closes the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 with him saying, so now faith, hope, love abide, these three. And he's saying all of these are good, right? But why does he say, but the greatest of these is love? Because when you're in glory, right? When you're seeing God face to face, guess what? You don't really need faith anymore. There's no use for that. You're with him face to face. Meaning your heart is no longer hindered by sin and influenced by sin to respond to the love of God the way that you were created to respond. There is no sin hindrance anymore. So faith is important now because right now we're hindered by so many things that, that come from sin brokenness. And hope is so important right now because the end, the end game is still not yet here. And we still need faith today and we still need hope. But the reason why Paul says the greatest of these is love is because whether you're, whether you're living today or whether you die and you, you are with God face to face, there is always love. That, that doesn't change. That doesn't change at all. That's why love is the greatest because it abides both now and forever. And that's the hope that John is giving to his people He's saying, there will come a time when his servants will see him face to face. And the way that happens is not by these believers climbing these heavenly, holy steps, 
and just the few who endure will see God face to face. It's by God bringing himself and his throne down into the city and being in the midst of the city. The way that we will see God face to face is not by us climbing the steps of of religious fervor and devotion, but it's by God condescending himself, not condescending has such a stigma to it, by God bringing himself down to earth where he will now make his throne on earth. And you see, that's what the Bible is about. This is the hope that John is communicating to his believers. And yet, so many times, the hope that we have, because we're, we're, we're broken by sin and this is the way we think, because our, our thinking and our emotions are, not, are more unfaithful to the Lamb of God than we think we are. Our emotions and our thoughts are more unfaithful to the work of God than we think we are. Because the way we think and the way that we have hope, faith and hope and the way that we will ever love something is by achieving something. Instead of allowing our achievements not to define us, but to be an expression of who we already are. You see, the way that we will see God face to face is when the throne of God and the Lamb of, and the Lamb and, and the throne of the Lamb, Lamb that was slain will be in the city and not just the river that flows from it. And that is true. So it's a city with God. It's a city that God will bring to fruition and where God himself will come into the city and he will live in it. The way that he lived in the Garden of Eden. If you remember that, that, that narrative in Genesis, the people actually, Adam and Eve, heard God walking. What does that sound like? If you believe in Genesis, that's for real, right? There will come a time when God will dwell with his people in that fashion. And we're, we're born into a situation, we're born into this middle situation where we've never witnessed the Garden of Eden and we've never witnessed the coming kingdom. And so we think, that's so odd. What does that look like? What does that sound like? What is it... To, to have the spiritual God, God who is spirit, you know, be physically present with us. What does that look like? Um, to us, it's odd because we've never experienced either, be, you know, before or after. But this is the promise of God, and this is what people want. And people, when they're suffering, the, the, the faith and the hope, it's, it's right for them to have. But to... To, to know that there will come a time when their physical suffering will be gone as well. It's not just them having strong faith to endure the suffering right now, but there will come a time when even the cross, where the cross will take care of the physical suffering as well and the, and the physical healing that will come, right? Sometimes we dichotomize the two so much, right? I do that a lot, right? But right now, the physical and the spiritual is separated in, in one sense. What, what's alive in us is not what's alive around us. But the promise is that what's alive in us, the faith that's alive in us, 
will also be alive around us. That's the promise of the new Jerusalem, of the coming city and the coming kingdom. And it says, his name will be on their foreheads. And what that means is, <laughs> it's talking about ownership. When someone's name is on your forehead, that was, that was considered you, you are owned by that person, right? Whosever name you have. So what God is saying is that you, I own you. We know that because we have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. But to use the language of having the name on the forehead is to say what is true internally will be made manifest externally. The ownership that I have over your life, over you, by faith, will be made evident to anyone who sees you face to face. They will know that there is a living God who owns you and that you belong to him, right? And that's the angst of Christians, of every one of us today, is that in, in, the, in, in living out a genuine life of faith, sometimes we get frustrated because people don't see what we believe. And that's part of the Christian life right now, is that we're supposed to hope in that which we cannot see. But what is the Bible about? It's not only that, because that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is when what God did in Genesis will be renewed. The, what, what was broken, um, what God did in Genesis, what, what has been broken by sin, it will be renewed um, in the coming kingdom, right? And that's the hope. So... I'm going to leave you with that. So that's the overview. That's what the Bible is about. This is the hope of Scripture. This is why we read it. This is why we meditate on it, right? Um, and next week, we're going to look at Genesis, and we're going to talk about family. What, what family, the role that family has to play in this big picture overarching theme of God bringing his people uh, to full restored glory one day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us together uh, to look upon your word, and we pray, God, that as you are creating us to be the city that you want us to be, a city that, that, that has life and that is flourishing, and a city where it has life and flourishing because of the God that is present with it. Father, we ask that you continue to mold us and continue to work your will in us so that we are more aligned and we are shaped more uh, to, to be faithful representatives of the work that you will ultimately perfect one day. And we look to that hope, we have faith in that God, and we trust you in all the ways that you are leading us now, even though the times may be easy or difficult, as long as you, our shepherd, are leading us, Lord, give us grace to follow each step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Please arise with me as we sing our last song.